Hey everyone, this is Josh with Spurgeon Maniacs to share how you guys can partner with us. First off, thank you to everyone who has been listening to our show and to those of you that came to our conference. We are gearing up to expand what we do for you guys, but we need your help. Go on over to patreon.com forward slash Spurgeon Maniacs. We would love to have your support to continue doing this podcast, conferences, and so much more as we grow. Also, give this podcast a five-star review on Apple or Google Podcasts. That's how more and more people are going to find what we're doing over here. Lastly, come find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and don't forget to email us at podcast at SpurgeonManiacs.com. Now, here is your episode. Charles Spurgeon was a man that God used, and millions are still being impacted by his kingdom work. As we examine his life and ministry, we hope to strengthen today's church and bring glory to Christ. My name is Joel Littlefield, lead pastor of New City Church in Bath, Maine, and I'm joined by my brother in Christ, Josh Whitney. Welcome to the Spurgeon Maniacs podcast. Hey, Spurgeon Maniacs, it's Josh Whitney here. We have another release for you guys from our conference. Joel and I, we mentioned before that we've got some things in the works for you, some ways to make it a little bit better for you guys, a little better for us. So in the meantime, we took our Q&A that was at the end of our conference back in May. And we've taken that, we've isolated it, and now we have it as a wonderful, awesome podcast for you guys to enjoy. So sit back, get ready to hear from Ed Romine, Jeff Chang, and James Renahan, and Joel Littlefield, as I, your wonderful host, ask a whole bunch of questions. Some good, some weird, and some awesome. We're really hoping you guys enjoy this Q&A. It was a lot of fun to be there. Make sure you're looking forward to next year's conference, and maybe you guys can have some of your questions answered from wonderful Spurgeon scholars as well. Enjoy the episode. We have a few questions coming in, so if you, if you think the time's over, keep just, just keep coming with the questions. Um, so here is the first question. It's not... It's not listed to anyone specifically, but uh, James, I'm, I'm sure you'll probably have the first crack at it. Did Spurgeon take any exceptions to the Second Lundis, London Baptist Confession? I seem to remember seeing that he wrote his own version of the confession. Uh, no, he didn't take any... These all on, Cade? Uh, all right, cool. Yeah, you're good. He didn't take any exceptions, but he did make some alterations. Hmm. So that, for example, in chapter 10, paragraph 3, uh, chapter 10 is of effectual calling. Um, the, the older version says, elect infants dying in infancy are saved and regenerated by Christ through the spirit of works when, where, and how he wills. 
Spurgeon dropped the word elect hmm. because he was convinced that all infants who die in infancy right. are saved and regenerated by Christ. Hmm. Uh, it also seems in chapter 19, uh, there's a statement about um, the, the, the use of the law, the third use of the law, and the original says uh, of, are of moral use, and it seems that his version changed it to are of modern use, mm. um, which does change the sense a little bit. So there, there are a couple of places where he adapted, but he didn't deny anything. Mm. And how common was that sort of modification? Would that have been unusual for a pastor to do? Well, uh, that, actually, that's a good question that, that I don't really know. I know about it because Spurgeon is so famous. Right, right, right. And sure. I don't know what particular churches would have done. Mm. Although I will say this, Benjamin Keach in the 1690s uh, published an adaptation of the confession mm -hmm. for his own church. So even within the lifespan mm -hmm. of those who adopted it, Keach messed it up. Sort of. <laughs> so not, not really. I mean, there's, I don't think he made any significant changes. And I wonder why he produced something that was just as long, if not longer, but with different order of chapters. And of course, he, he added some things about singing and laying on of hands, right, right, which are right. unique to Keach. Well, and I seem to recall even when you look at when the church called Gill, John Gill, as the pastor, at the very beginning is also his kind of confession of faith. But I haven't gone back and looked at it carefully, but I wonder if he's doing kind of similar modifications, though, in, on the whole, it's still the same confession. Yeah, yeah. That's, actually, those are really good questions that, that uh, I don't know. We how have to a answer. format for questions. <laughs> um, Just, no one's above the rules. But, you know, I think, that, I think that something of what happened was um, there was a huge controversy in London in the early 1690s over the propriety of singing in worship. Mm -hmm. And it had to do with actually singing. It wasn't about psalms versus human compositions or anything. It was about singing. Hmm. And um, to some degree, that, that caused a separation and a split in the London Baptist. And so I think that some of the changes that you see in the 18th century among the Baptists, particular Baptists in London, are because of the hard feelings. And it, it was a real mess. It, it was a very sad situation. <laughs> So, if I may say, there is a recent Spurgeon scholar who is a pastor out in um, Kirksville, Missouri, Dr. Brandon Ray. He recently wrote a dissertation where he compares Spurgeon's view on the Sabbath to the London Baptist Confession, the 1677 or more popularly known as the 1689, where he actually concludes that Spurgeon's theology of the Sabbath was pretty well in line with the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Second London. And that dissertation, I believe I can say this, is coming out as a book with a reputable publisher here pretty soon, and he's kicked off a new series and Spurgeon scholarship hopefully where men will actually compare Spurgeon's personal theology with that of the London Baptist Confession. So hmm. that'll be something you'll want to look out for. 
Great. And this is just an extra. It is your personal mission to change it, uh, James, to the, six, the, to the Second London Confession, right? Not the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's my pet peeve. <laughs> okay. Um, this one from Mike Whitney. Please explain limited atonement more. I thought the Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. So, light question. I think I think that one's I'm maybe taking for you. My mic's. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, technical difficulties. Explain limited atonement more. Oh, yeah. So I think that uh, I'll just kind of lean back on what uh, it would be difficult to do in a in a in a. Uh, a quick Q&A like this. Um, I think that is the predominant uh, view that Jesus died for the whole world. I think that I, I like to, the way I like to think about it is um, effectual, like the effectual calling, that the atonement um, of Christ um, accomplishes everything that it was set out to accomplish. Um, and so in the talk that I gave it clarifies to me that there is, there is a limit somewhere because not all are saved. And if not all are saved, and you guys please weigh in, I, I love you, but um, if not all are saved, it's not due to God's limit of power. There has to be an intention somewhere in his sovereign, perfect, holy decree that we, won't never, we will never understand fully. But I believe that the limit, there is a limit on its scope, its reach, but, but it's not a question of God's power. And I think at some point I have had to just humble myself and say, I think that's what scripture teaches, whether it sounds like the most popular view or not. Um, brothers, please add, help me here. Well, I think often when you read, you know, for example, the Gospel of John, Christ died for the whole world, you have to... Mm understand what John means when he uses the word world. Mm-hmm. Does he mean every single individual? Uh, does he mean all kinds of people? Does he mean kind of that, that system of set up in opposition against God? I mean, you just have to think carefully about what that, what that word means mm-hmm. uh, in the way John is using it or whoever the, the, the apostle is using it. Uh, another, I mean, I think what helps me so often is also, I think John Owen frames it this way. You know, he, he talks about thinking about the, the, the statement, Christ died for either all or some of the sins of all or some of the people. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can say, Christ died for all the sins of all people. That would be universalism. You can say, Christ died for some of the sins of all people. That would be a kind of Arminianism, right? They believe that Christ died for all, some of the sins except for the sin of unbelief, right? And for those who are unbelieving, they, they remain in their sins. Uh, the view of limited atonement would be Christ died for all of the sins of some of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could say Christ died for some of the sins of some of the people, which nobody holds to that position. <laughs> but but I mean, that, uh, in framing it that way, that's helpful logically to think through, okay, what do I believe about the atonement, right? Uh, did Christ die for all of the sins of some of the people or some of the sins of all of the people? Um, and I'm convinced in the way that the scriptures talk about the atonement, about what Christ accomplished in his death, 
it seems as if to say the atonement is effective. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually accomplishes salvation. Another way to help me think about this is when we look at, when we think about Tulip, total depravity describes our condition as fallen humans. Then you've got unconditional election, which is a wonderful statement about the Father's choice of those whom he saves. Irresistible grace is a wonderful statement about the Spirit's work to draw the sinner in. Then what about the atonement? Mm. The atonement is a wonderful statement about Christ's particular saving work for his people. Right? Yeah. So there you have the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit working together to particularly save for himself a people. Uh, and so I think if you hold to unconditional election and irresistible grace, limited atonement really yeah. just speaks at Christ's particular work of salvation for his people. Would you say that context in a lot of these common scriptures is, is a pretty... Pretty important thing, uh, reading around what this text, like for instance, what you mentioned in John, uh, Christ died for the sins of the world. But the, the text, the context for understanding that would be all of Scripture. You, right, sure. you, couldn't, you can't just, well, because it says it in John, it must mean he's died for all the sins of all the people. Um, but the context of all the Bible is how we interpret Scripture. And it seems to be the entire message of it is, is what limit, is limited atonement. The other, another text that is common that I got hung up on a lot was, um, and that gets used a lot, is that he does not desire any to perish. So shouldn't, doesn't he want all to be saved? And that is a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to sort of wrestle through, but it does seem as though Paul is speaking to the church, and I think that you can very accurately say in that context that none of his people will perish, and that his great desire and uh, his, even his sovereign decree is that his people, his bride, will not perish, but they will come to repentance. Um, and that's just such an encouraging fact and such an encouraging thought um, that all that he intends to say will be saved. I think, too, what's helpful is to have a uh, consistent theology um, from the Old Testament to the New. And when you look at, for say, the book of Leviticus, what you see with the book of Leviticus is that the, the sacrifices of the animals were to, were to cover the sins of the people of Israel. They, they did not cover the sins of the pagan nations around them. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews expands upon Levitical themes. And one of the glories of Hebrews is that God is still building a people. And in that building of a people, you've got a perfect Lamb of God that purifies for himself a people. So when you look at the book of Leviticus, nobody ever has a problem with the atonement sacrifices being limited there. And it's the same Levitical ideas being perpetuated in the New Testament. But now, instead of a blemished animal, it is metaphorically the perfect Lamb of God. Mm -hmm. and, and there is a sense in which He will take away the sin of the cosmos, where you are going to live in a new heavens and new earth, the creation's gonna be restored, the creation's no longer gonna grow. Uh, 
So I, I think there's a sense in which we have to ask ourselves, and this is more of a theological and philosophical argument, if the blood of Jesus Christ paid for the sins of everyone who has ever lived, why is there anybody in hell? Yeah. And when you really start thinking about what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ actually bore the wrath of his Father, and he took the penalty that was due for sinners upon himself. Mm. And, and you think about that. What is hell? Hell is God's unrelenting anger against sin because of his holiness being forever offended. Mm. And that is why hell must be eternal because sinners have offended a holy God. Mm. And only the cross of Christ can rid a man of the punishment of hell. Mm -hmm. So if anybody goes there, that must mean, theologically speaking, that the cross is ineffective for them. So classical limited atonement has always said this, that the, that the cross of Christ is efficient and sufficient mm -hmm. only for the elect. That's most of the Doherty and Calvinists. There, there were some four-pointers that signed, but that's been the general view of those who have held to a, a limited atonement. They carried that same Levitical idea over, that the sacrifice of the Lamb is actually for a people, and it must be effective. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot of sense. I could probably find a Joshua and an Aaron yeah. for you if you wanted. What's that? <laughs> for, for, for Jeff. I could find a Joshua and an Aaron to hold up his arms. Oh, brother, that was all good. <laughs> need to keep your, Can I take your slider? <laughs> yes, please. Go brother. for it, brother. <laughs> when, when we read the Bible and we seek to understand the Bible, it is very important for us to treat it with integrity and not quickly to dismiss language that may at first glance seem to be counter to any doctrine that we are upholding. And so I, I think that this is a valid question because there are texts in the scripture that seem to indicate at first reading that the, the atonement of our Lord Jesus was uh, purposefully and intentionally for the sins of the world. We have to take those texts seriously, not ignore them. Um, and, and so, when I, as I've struggled with this, now it was a long time ago, I wanted to look at every one of the texts that use the word world or that use the word all. Mm. And try to treat them with integrity and understand them properly. But I think uh, a suggestion that I would make is that in the 20th century, in the 21st century, some interpretations of scripture became common among evangelicals that are 
out of step with the history of the church and the way that the church historically has understood scripture. Now, we don't come to conclusions on the basis of numbers. That, you know, 90% of the church believe this and 10% of the church believes this, but they're the most recent, therefore the 90% is right. I'm, I'm not arguing for that. What I'm arguing for is a careful study of each of the texts in the light of three things. One is the history of the church. How has the church understood these texts? Now, we don't adopt a view because the church has held a view, but remember that we're not the first generation of Christians mm. and that others have gone before us and wrestled with the question. So we need to hear their voices. Our brother Jeff just mentioned John Owen in the famous treatise that he wrote called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, which is a wonderful title in which he is arguing that the punishment that came to Adam and his descendants as a result of sin is itself brought to death through the death of our Savior. And, he, and he's arguing for the intentionality of God in causing that death of death by the death of Christ to be for his people. Now, also, what the, the, so one, we have history, and we've got John Owen as a, just an example of that. But there are two other things, two other principles of interpretation that are really important to put into our minds. The first one is called the analogy of scripture. And you, you mentioned that, Joel. The analogy of scripture says we interpret any word, phrase, verse, passage in the light of the whole of scripture. We don't treat it as if it's isolated from everything else, but we treat it as a part of everything else because we believe that every part of the Bible is inspired and inerrant. That though there are many human authors, there's one divine author and that divine author being immutable, being perfect, has given to us a, a book that is self-consistent. It doesn't contradict itself. So we, we look in the rest of the book to give us interpretations of what any particular word, phrase, verse, uh, passage, chapter, even a whole book are about, okay? So the analogy of scripture enters in here. So for example, let me give you an example that's relevant, okay? I think that when we have questions like this, we ought to go to the most difficult passage and really use that to teach us and everything else falls into place afterwards. So in my opinion, one of the most difficult passages at least is 1 John 2.2, which says, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, okay? And often those who argue for a universal atonement will go there and say, see, here, here John is contrasting Christians with the whole world. But I would suggest that the analogy of scripture says something else. Because in John's gospel, he uses the same kind of language to speak about Jews and Gentiles. The whole world is the Gentile population. It doesn't mean every person who has ever lived. It means those who are not Jewish. So you come to 1 John 2.2 and you read that in light of what he says in his gospel. And it's legitimate to understand it in terms of that the elect of God for whom Christ died are those who are Jew and Gentile. And I'm thankful to God for the Gentile because I'm Amen. a descendant of Northern Europeans who painted their faces blue and danced around bonfires. And when they killed their enemies, they ate them. That's my ancestors. And, and most of yours. We are, you know, some barbarians. 
There's a bunch of barbarians here. You know? <laughs> Civilized Chinese let's, people. Let's be true. <laughs> look down on let's you. be honest, right? We're not the, most of us are not descendants of Abraham. We're Gentiles. We're pagans. And yet God saved us. That's incredible. The second thing to think about when you come to that text is, what does the Bible say about propitiation? Now, and, and you hinted at this, Ed. What is the doctrine of propitiation in the Bible? Does propitiation actually turn away the wrath of God? Is it a sacrifice in blood that satisfies God's righteous demands against sin? Or does it just make us savable? And I would argue that propitiation in the rest of the Bible always means the genuine turning away of wrath so that sin might be forgiven. So we come back to 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation. How is that word used in the rest of the Bible? He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the Gentiles, the world. Okay? So I, I think that you can... I'm not reading anything into the text. I'm trying to interpret the text in light of what the rest of the Bible says about that kind of language. Okay? So that's that we've got history, we've got the analogy of scripture, then the analogy of faith is the third one. And the analogy of faith, let me give you a different illustration. The analogy of faith teaches us to interpret certain texts in light of the doctrines that the Bible teaches elsewhere. And it's often cults will make a, a big deal about certain verses when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, they're going to turn you to John chapter 10 where Jesus says, my father is greater than I. See, he's the firstborn of all creation. But it's the doctrine of the Trinity and what the doctrine of the Trinity means that God is one and God is three and that the three persons share everything that belongs to God. All that may be said about God belongs to Father, Son, and Spirit that helps us to see that Jesus there is speaking about himself as mediator, as the God-man, not about himself ontologically as the second person of the Holy Trinity. So the analogy of faith protects us from a, a faulty doctrine of the deity of Christ in that point. So we, as you heard me say, we need to treat passages of scripture with great integrity, but great integrity doesn't mean that the prima facie, the first reading, is necessarily the right reading. Mm -hmm. How has the history of the church understood this? What does the analogy of scripture teach us? What does the analogy of faith teach us? And when you come out on the other end and you say, well, the analogy of faith teaches us, the analogy of scripture teaches us, the history of the church teaches us that it was the intention of the Father in sending the Son to provide an atonement for the sins of the elect, you, you end up with, I don't like the phrase, but you end up with limited atonement. I prefer the definite, definite atonement point, you know. Yeah. But that's that's how I would get there. It's good. It, it deserves a whole lot more than that. Mm -hmm. But that's, I think, how we can, you know, begin to think through it. I hope that answers the question. Everyone should be thoroughly convinced of Calvinism by this point. <laughs> if you were four, you're, anyways. The debate is over now. We're, it's, yeah. our, it's been settled. It's done. So. No, that, thank, thank you, brothers. You Appreciate it. Yeah. Very, very good. good. Now, I've seen too many YouTube videos that I, that I must start asking my questions like this, just like, just like RC. <laughs> That's all right with you guys. I've always wanted to do this. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> I don't know why you're clapping. That's a different guy. All right. So here's, here's another one that shouldn't be, um, that shouldn't be too stark of a, of a contrast. 
In your scholarly opinions, so you three, um, how much... It's okay, I'm good. How much did Spurgeon's post-millennial views drive his missionary in evangelistic endeavors? Do you find his view necessary, helpful, and or biblical for ministry today? I don't think that he was uh, post-millennial. I think that that question assumes uh, zealous language, like what I read in my uh, presentation of a young man. You'll find language where Spurgeon sounds like all three of the major views, assuming historic premillennialism. Uh, dispensationalism uh, was not something Spurgeon would have ever been a fan of. But, and if you're dispensational, I'm sorry, but he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been on board with that. So um, he just wasn't right. So it, it's really hard to pin down where Spurgeon was, in my view, eschatologically. It depends on if you're talking about young Spurgeon i.e. what I read this morning or later on in his life. So that's my answer. Good. There yeah, we go. I agree. That's what I see in Spurgeon too is almost not indecision, but um, he, he uses language at times that could fit into any of the three categories. Right. Yeah. And it would be optimistic amillennialism. Right. Yeah, if you, mm. if you go with the amill route. If you want to know my scholarly opinion. Yeah, because you've read a few books. I agree with Ed. (laughs) (laughs) That's good scholarly work right there. Thanks, man. (laughs) Jeff, you good? Cool. All right. Who were some of Spurgeon's well-known contemporaries that he valued and maybe some of the lesser-known men as well? Did he cross paths with Moody, George Mueller, Hudson, Ta- Hudson Taylor, etc.? Any comments on these relationships? I mean, he, he really, really, really liked uh, John Charles Rowe, otherwise known as J.C. Rowe, uh, which is really interesting because he was not a fan of the established church, but he really enjoyed J.C. Rowe. Um, other folks that he really liked was uh, people like Alexander McLaren. He really appreciated uh, Alexander McLaren. If you have his uh, 12-volume set, I think it is, of his expositions, if you don't have those, get those. They're worthy of being in your library. Well, shut up so Jeff Sorm doesn't fall off. (laughs) (laughs) He was friends with D.L. Moody. Uh, Moody came and preached for him when he was doing his UK sort of evangelistic tour campaign, crusade I think it was called. Uh, You know, Moody was an Armenian uh, and yet Spurgeon saw sort of a a like-mindedness in terms of the gospel and his passion for evangelism. Later on, Moody would become quite influential in Thomas Spurgeon's life, uh, in many ways kind of mentoring him. Uh, Some, I think uh, Ian Murray argues that Moody was more influential in Thomas Spurgeon in terms of his philosophy of ministry than his own father was, hmm. uh, which describes a little bit of why kind of things took a shift at the Metropolitan Tabernacle after Spurgeon's time. 
Um, <clears throat> Hudson Taylor, Spurgeon was a big fan. Uh, many of his members went f from the Metropolitan Tabernacle to go work with Hudson Taylor in China. Uh, and he is also a big fan of George Mueller. Right? Mueller was a huge influence in terms of his thinking about orphanages. Uh, and so when he started his orphanage, he sort of patterned it after George Mueller's. Uh, and this question comes from Ed Romine. Did you steal his phone? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, we kind of brought you here to be the guy to answer the questions, but that's all right. <laughs> if, uh, if you're conducting membership interviews and you're convinced someone isn't saved, how do you wisely and lovingly communicate your concerns to the prospective member? Hmm. Preach the gospel in the interview. Mm -hmm. In a loving way. Check yes if you agree. And then, sorry. That's why I don't answer the questions. <laughs> I said, and then just check yes if you agree. And then I said, that's why I don't answer the questions, because I'm no good. I think it's helpful at that point, if you feel like they're struggling to communicate the gospel to you, uh, to just say, hey, we would love to just kind of put a pause on this interview uh, and set up a time for you to meet with your brother and so-so in the church. Uh, he's going to take you for four weeks through the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, and uh, the hope is that you know by the end of that study you can come back and kind of explain, have a better understanding of the Gospel. And so having pointing them to kind of an action plan, I think, often is helpful, rather than just saying no, you know, um, but having a system set up where they can kind of study the Gospel with another member of the church. We, so we don't do it this way, but I, when you when you were describing Spurgeon's process, which I think is like six, it was like a six step. Yeah, it's pretty intense. But it began with an interview. That's right. So we do interview in a, at about our third step, and I love about what, what what Spurgeon did that the interview being the very first step is could be extremely helpful. You avoid a lot of maybe expectation or hope where they've gotten too far in with the church, and then suddenly you're like, hey, sorry, you you can't become a member. But the interview can be a very relational, you know, even disciple you know, shepherdly driven, like caring for their soul. I think you, uh, in, in asking them, can you share with me your understanding of the gospel? You're almost really just putting it in their, in their court. And if they don't explain the gospel, I think you can, you can say, um, that's, you know, it's not consistent with scripture, but we'd love to be able to walk with you and teach you and share with you what that looks like. But if it's in the context of a relational church and disciple-making church, um, I think you, you have a huge advantage if they see that the, the pastor is a shepherd and cares for their soul. Yeah. Good. Do you have any thoughts, brother? Yeah. No, okay. I knew what I was gonna ask next, and I didn't. Um, <laughs> so, I'm sorry for giggling. If, uh, this one might be fun. If. If you could slap any heretic in the face like St. Nicholas did to Arius, uh, who would you slap? <laughs> Wait. It, it's a toss-up with me between uh, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. That's good. That's good. Since, Taylor. since the qualifications for scripture for our elders say not a brawler. Yeah. Mm. It's a trick question. It Ed Fitt. 
Let's just hope uh, Brend- Brendan doesn't listen to this. <laughs> oh, that's good. All right. Um, so this one is uh, to you, Ed, from Austin. Was Spurgeon's open-air preaching strictly centered on the gospel? And would he get into cultural conversations, debates with people, like, do, um, like we do with homosexuality and abortion and even the existence of God today? Um, I'm going to answer that question backwards. Um, he would not, as far as I know, get into conversations with people in his preaching because his preaching, and I didn't mention this during my lecture, had to do more with, he was already famous by the time these sermons were written down, so simply him being him, he would naturally gather a a congregation just by virtue of people would find out, hey, Spurgeon's preaching, let's go hear him. That's why he had a congregation of twelve to 14,000. When you read his lectures to my students, what you find is he assumes, sorry, brother, he assumes that those that he's teaching open-air preaching to are kind of going to be doing more of a Ray Comfort style where people are just passing by and they're just preaching to them. But he did have exhortations and lectures to my students and evangelistic witness, oddly enough, not to be a brawler. So so he would not value, and he talks about this, shock and awe preaching. Like you'll hear of quote-unquote open-air preachers that try to get people mad so they get punched in the face, then they can sue and all that sort of stuff. He would not be for that because in his preaching, he was concerned about sticking to the gospel. And even when you get to another sermon of his that was preached at Epson on the grandstand about running the race where Paul was telling Timothy to run the race, it's a very congregational sermon given to the Christian in the open air. And even in that sermon, it's very much centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that sermon is much more congregationally based in the open air than evangelistic. And that's also in the New Park Street, one of the three sermons. And I analyze that one too. So does that answer your question? Okay, one. Anyone else? (laughs) So, Jeff, here's one for you. What data management system did METTAB use to track all its members? This is somewhat rhetorical. Uh, Could you comment further on the work they did in keeping track of their members? It is impressive when considering they didn't have the fancy systems that we have today. Um, As far as I know, they had just a large notebook with the membership of the church in it and each member, each member assigned a number. Uh, and so lots of kind of just manual labor in terms of checking numbers, uh, you know, collecting those tickets, uh, as far as I can tell. Now someone asked me, hey, should churches today 
adopt a kind of communion ticket system. And I just thought, well, if you have a church of 100 people, that would be a lot of work just for tracking 100 people, right? Typically, if you have uh, at least a few elders with you, you can generally have a good sense of who's showing up and who's not, right? And, and, and come up with other structures to kind of facilitate that. Um, but yeah, for, for a church of s such a large size, that ticket system makes more sense. Though these days, I think there would be more of an electronic database that would probably be helpful. Uh, but you know, it was, a, it was just a paper database uh, in a notebook that they used. Do you know the number of people that they disfellowshipped or that were removed from the roles compared to those that were added? Yes, I mean, over, you, you mentioned the number. He added uh, around or over 14,000 people over yeah. his ministry. He, he, he removed, um, I think, nearly 11,000 or so, 10, 11,000. It's amazing. So they did a, just a remarkable work, not only in bringing people into church, but actually keeping track of them. And so yeah. when they moved on, they followed up with them, made sure that they were settled somewhere, or just you know, kept the, the membership roles accurate. Um, May I ask a question? Yeah. It, it came to my mind. Uh, did you, when you did your PhD work, did you go to the tab and look at these? I did. Yeah. How, how did they survive the fire and the bombing? I'm so grateful to those that they did. Um, they, I'm not sure. I mean, they, uh, they are currently in a fireproof vault, yeah. you know, behind a heavy door. Yeah. I don't know how old that vault is. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering that when yeah. you were talking because, mm -hmm. I mean, the building was basically destroyed. So right. they must have been right. in some location. And there have been so many churches throughout London where I've asked, hey, do you have the minute books from kind of the earliest days? And their answer is no, it was burned up during yeah. the, the war. The Blitz, yeah. yeah. So I'm so grateful that these remain. Yeah. 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 All right. Did Spurgeon engage with pastors or other churches outside of his own congregation, either around London or even around the world? And if so, what did, they, what did that look like? Training, mentoring, prayer, etc. Uh, well, the, the pastor's college, I mean, that became its own kind of pastoral network. So uh, the students that he sent out would come back at least once a year. They had a pastor's college conference. Uh, so he mentored them, encouraged them. Uh, it was kind of a, a network of like-minded churches. Beyond his own circle, though, he was heavily involved with the Baptist Union. So uh, many other pastors kind of looked to him uh, as a kind of example, model. Uh, his Thursday evening services uh, were particularly of help to other ministers in London who uh, you know, obviously had to work on Sundays, who were preaching on Sundays, but they would often go to the Metat on for the Thursday evening service to be themselves spiritually encouraged and refreshed under another pastor's teaching. Um, and beyond that, uh, I mean, Susanna talks about just the huge volumes of correspondence that would always be coming in, uh, and many of those would be pastors writing to Spurgeon, seeking advice. And Spurgeon was always, she thinks, too kind in wanting to respond to every letter. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, he carried on a pretty kind of global ministry, which is remarkable. Mm. Uh, I think he had a sense of the, the sort of stewardship that the Lord had given him because of his influence, and he tried to be faithful in that. And, and he traveled a lot, didn't he? He would, was very generous with his time with, a, say, a church was trying to raise money to build a building. Mm. He would go and preach there. 
and they would take an offering or he would help them to do the fundraising, what we would call it today. So he traveled a lot too. Yeah. All right. Uh, with Spurgeon's insight, with okay, <clears throat> with Spurgeon's insight and concern with modernism infecting the church in his time, could you juxtapose that with current postmodernism and the church and its detriment? To all, uh, that's to all of you. Anyone? Could you repeat that question? Sure, I understand. Well, yeah. With Spurgeon's insight and concern with modernism infecting the church in his time, could you juxtapose that with current postmodernism in the church and its detriment? As in, like, would he also be against today? Is that what the question's asking? I would think so. Todd? Caesar, where are you? Yes, I think there are certainly principles, if I'm understanding your question correctly, that Spurgeon held on to uh, biblical fidelity during what's commonly called the downgrade, where scriptural inerrancy was, was being questioned and, and things of that nature. We, we can look to Spurgeon, and although Spurgeon would never know, I, I don't think, the term transgender, it wasn't really a thing. Uh, we can certainly say, based off what we know, that he would oppose it with all of his might. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, modernism was this sort of exaltation of human reason, uh, this confidence in human progress. Uh, in essence, though, it was a moving away from the authority of Scripture uh, and, and placing its confidence elsewhere. And I think in that, all these different movements would have that in common. It's a moving away from the authority of Scripture to other sources of authority. And, and in that, Spurgeon would just make clear um, that if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be rooted in Scripture. Right? And he would refuse to allow people to redefine what it means to be a Christian uh, by removing it from God's word. I thought it was quite interesting that Spurgeon and Darwin existed in a similar context uh, within about a 25-year period. And so you get to see Spurgeon in sermons interacting pretty head-on with uh, Darwinism coming into that view and humanism and, and so it is interesting that's an easy look up and an easy thing that you can kind of see Spurgeon handling uh, from the pulpit um, speaking against evolution and what it was going to do to the schools and what it was going to do to culture and even giving even some pretty serious prophecy of what is going to happen to the world and into the education education system and to children if they cling to this Darwinian teaching. And so I would, I would encourage you to look up that. It's one specific incident that you can see him handling, sort of hit 
not backing down, but ta- tackling it from the pulpit even and speaking to his people about it. Yeah. All right, so we'll finish with this last question. Biblically, is it permissible for women to open air preach? Oh, that's good. I would say no. There are godly brothers that would disagree with me. I see open air preaching as an extension of the pastoral office of preaching and teaching. So. Anyone else want to tackle that, or? Uh, I've never thought about it much. I've I've thought about it, but uh, yeah. thought about it, just don't want to. Well, say I say it. like so. Should should women evangelize? Yes, right. Um, so you add a little volume and go into the streets. Uh, how does that change? So I, I think what what Ed his talk was on was, was actually, Spurgeon was, was expositing text, wasn't he? It was more than just, so that, it's a way, the way we do open air preaching is often different than what Spurgeon does. It's, it's not standing on the street corner um, ar- arguing or creating a, an argument around a particular culture issue, but he was actually opening the scriptures and preaching a sermon from beginning to end, Correct. Right, and so that's why I think you, know, you would see it as an extension of the pastoral office because he's really acting as though that is his pulpit and he's preaching the word. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Clears it up. It's good. This is your opportunity. That's it. Anyone else? I think that's it. Okay. Oh, you got... I think so. Yeah. Yeah. What, did you hear him? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you all for being the being the ones who stuck it out all the way to the end. Let's give a yeah. round of applause for our wonderful speakers who came. Thank you. Thank you guys. Awesome. And they've agreed to stay here for three more hours to answer any more questions that you guys not, have. Not, <laughs> no. not James. No. We, uh, we, we've, uh, we're very thankful for you guys' time. Thank you yes. so much. Um, all of you having traveled quite a ways to get here. And so we, we thank you very much for that. And thank you guys. I mean, this, the reason that we're here is because you all said, sure, I'll go do that. And yeah. then you like gave up of your own resources to come here. So that's such a huge blessing. So incredibly grateful as far yeah. as Virgin Maniacs is concerned. And I, I mean, I hope that uh, this was all just a huge blessing for all you guys. And um, I just go to church tomorrow. This doesn't count. This <laughs> yes. isn't it. This isn't it. Fine. Right. Go to your local fellowship because yeah. um, this is great fellowship, but your body needs you. So be in church tomorrow. Yeah. Anything else I'm missing? I would say just the best way you can uh, participate and, and continue to encourage Josh and I and, yes. uh, and help this uh, project to continue is um, pray for us, listen to the podcast, go read Spurgeon, um, stay up to date with what we're doing. We'd love to do this again next year. Um, and then we'll see how we'll see what the Lord does with it. So pray for God's will to be done with this this endeavor here in the state of Maine. We, I, we believe New England can use something like this more often. Um, so if you believe that too as well, then you, you guys can participate and, uh, and and help us that way. 
Um, but I think, I think that's it. Uh, you yeah. guys are now part of the cleaning crew. And so, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We're a small church. Um, can, I, uh, can I ask um, if, James, would you pray for the pastors as they preach tomorrow? Mm. And um, just a brief prayer for the pastors. And brother, can you pray for uh, the, uh, anybody who's not a pastor in here that's just sort of um, taking all this information, trying to figure out what to do with it? And then, um, Ed, if you'll just close us in prayer, whatever the Lord leads, okay? Let's do that. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for our brothers who tomorrow will bring your word to your people. We ask that you would give them insight, clarity, help them to speak plainly, simply, but without compromise, the truth of the word. We ask that you would send your spirit upon them and use them when the lost are present. Bring the gospel to the lost and save them. We ask that you would glorify yourself. It's your day. It's your appointed meeting. It is your appointed means. And so boldly we ask you to do that which you have promised and come upon the men who serve you as they preach the word. We ask through our Savior and mediator, Jesus Christ. And God, we pray for all those who have attended here today. Lord, we pray that they would take whatever good and benefit that they've received uh, and have opportunities to share that with others in their churches, uh, that they would cause that blessing to spread beyond themselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Father, I agree with the prayers of my brothers. I pray that this upcoming Sunday, tomorrow, that you would be pleased to spark again a, a revival within the hearts of your people. We need our local church families. And we need revival each and every week. We thank you for the ability to celebrate through hearing the preaching of the Word of God and singing worship songs unto you and also, Lord, just getting to uh, take the Lord's Supper for those of us that will be doing that. And I pray and ask that you would get all the glory tomorrow as we give that day over to you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.